Hi, my name is Ellis Tucci, and today I want to talk about how you are discriminated against by the housing industry. Have you ever been squeezed for rent by your landlord? Have you ever had to skip meals so you could make monthly payments? Have you been unable to find affordable housing? Has this pandemic pushed you to the brink of homelessness? Today, I want to talk about housing development and how our system sees you as expendable. You're listening to Hidden History, and this is episode 89. Coming home. If you like this episode, then you can subscribe, leave a review, or follow the link in the description of this episode. So, for this episode, talking about housing policy in America, I want to split into two parts. How that discrimination is manifested and enabled, and what we can do to end it. The song you're hearing in the background is Coming Home Baby by Mel Torme, and with that, Let's get into the show. Housing discrimination appears in many forms, but the three that I'm going to cover in this episode are discrimination against race, gender, and economic status. Let's start off by talking about race. I'm going to read an excerpt from a January 2006 article in the California Law Review by Benjamin Howell titled Exploiting Race and Space subprime lending as housing discrimination. The links for all of this episode's sources are in the description if you'd like to do some further reading. Let's listen to an anecdote that Howell gives of a black church in Washington, D.C. Clyde Hargraves, reverend of the Little Ark Baptist Church in a predominantly black section of the District of Columbia, received an unsolicited telephone call from a mortgage broker who had said he had heard of the church's financial trouble. The church was $70,000 in debt. Reverend Hargraves, convinced by the broker that the church would have difficulty securing a smaller loan, pledged the church property to secure a $160,000 loan, which, he discovered only at the closing, included a $26,000 origination fee and a 25% interest rate for the first four years. When he tried to reach the broker to complain about the fee, the broker's phone had been disconnected. After two years of struggling to make the payments, the Little Ark Church declared bankruptcy. The mortgage broker foreclosed on the property and sold it for more than $200,000 profit. The broker, Capital City Mortgage, directed its marketing almost exclusively towards borrowers in black neighborhoods. 94% of its loans in the district were tied to majority black census tracts. I'm absolutely sure that it's common knowledge among my non-white listeners, but I find that a surprising amount of white people don't know what redlining is, and that's something that's absolutely critical knowledge in the history of American housing discrimination. In 1933, in the middle of the Great Depression, 
the Roosevelt administration created the Home Owners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, to provide federal loans and refinancing opportunities to current homeowners and prospective buyers. Mortgage relief under the HOLC was not administered equally, and that moderating factor was race. The HOLC produced maps of every city in America in order to determine where they should channel this federal money. The perceived risk of a neighborhood was determined by its racial makeup. On the city maps, black neighborhoods were considered hazardous and outlined in thick red ink. This policy resulted in a massive decline in the quality of housing available to minority Americans. And while white America was the recipient of federal aid that allowed for the accumulation of vast generational wealth, the victims of redlining were forced further into a vicious poverty trap that became even harder to escape from. The long-term result of policies like redlining have resulted in a racial wealth gap that puts the average worth of the average white family at $171,000, and the average black family at 17150 Now, if we're talking about housing discrimination based on race, then you might be thinking to yourself, ah, but Ellis, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 makes such discrimination illegal. You would be, of course, technically right, but you would be making the critical mistake of ignoring the difference between de facto and de jure discrimination. If something is de jure discrimination, then that means it's codified into law, like Jim Crow. If something is de jure discrimination, then that means it absolutely exists, but there's no explicit law making it that way. The anecdote in the beginning of this segment about the mortgage broker that used predatory lending practices to target black communities is de jure discrimination. It doesn't matter that redlining was made illegal in 1968 because the damage was already done in 1933. Malcolm X once said, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, that's not progress. If you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. Progress is healing the wound that the blow made. And that's something that absolutely applies here. We have a case of the federal government actively suppressing and exploiting parts of the population, and then 30 years later outlawing their practices without correcting the damage done, and without touching the structures that made black Americans the continual victims of predatory and exploitative lending. In that same article by Benjamin Howell, he goes on to write, where globalized capital and free market finance meet America's shameful history of racial segregation and subordination, a new and insidious form of racial discrimination lurks. Where lending discrimination once took a binary form, bigoted loan officers rejecting loan applicants based on the color of their skin, the new model of discrimination is exploitation. Unscrupulous lenders now prey on a history of racial redlining by aggressively marketing overpriced loan products with onerous terms in the same neighborhoods where mainstream lenders refused to lend. Howell was writing in 2006, which was, of course, a year before the housing bubble burst and brought on the Great Recession. 
Keeping in mind what I've said so far, it's unsurprising to note that black families, with their significantly lower rate of home ownership and household wealth that is approximately a tenth of white families, were among the hardest hit by the recession. That same observation holds true for our current recession, where black families are facing eviction and bankruptcy at a significantly higher rate than white families. The compounding effects of this de facto and de jure discrimination means that the racial wealth gap will only continue to grow, and that the impact of every single economic downturn will reverberate throughout black families for generations, further kneecapping upward mobility and access to quality housing. Now, let's talk about discrimination based on gender and sexual orientation. If you're a member of the LGBT community, you absolutely face housing discrimination. According to Lee Badgett's 2019 paper titled The Relationship Between LGBT Inclusion and Economic Development, Macro-Level Evidence, when controlling for age, urbanicity, employment status, language, education, and more, LGBT people have a 15% higher chance of being poor, a 20% lower rate of homeownership make up between 20 and 45% of homeless youths, have a 2.2 times greater risk of being homeless between the ages of 18 to 25, and experience significant discrimination at homeless shelters. According to the Equal Rights Center's 2014 report, Opening Doors, an investigation of barriers to senior housing for same-sex couples, senior members of the LGBT community are at a high risk of being turned down or being charged more for senior housing in both independent living and assisted care facilities. According to Hua Sun and Lei Gao's 2019 article, Lending Practices to Same-Sex Borrowers, and again, these are all linked in the description, when controlled for outside factors, same-sex couples experience an 8% higher rate of denial on loan applications. This is another example of de jure discrimination. Only 21 states in Washington, D.C. have laws that prohibit housing discrimination based on gender or sexuality. But as we learned in the previous segment, there is a world of difference between law and practice. The Housing Rights Act of 1968 covers all 50 states in Washington, D.C., but housing discrimination based on race is still incredibly common. Even if we did have federal legislation that outlawed housing discrimination based on gender and sexuality, then that discrimination would still exist because we've done nothing to disassemble the structures that enable that discrimination in the first place. Let's think about it this way. You're a woman working in a male-dominated office. Now, you're a good employee, but your coworkers, they don't respect you. They don't think that you belong there. They don't believe that a woman can do their job. Now, according to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it is illegal to fire someone based on their sex. This protection also extends to sexuality. Yet one day, your boss calls you into his office and tells you to clear out your desk. It seems clear that he's fired you because you're a woman. That's illegal. But your boss can still do that because there's an overarching structure that allows him to. In this case, that structure is something called at-will employment, which means that your boss can fire you at any time for any reason. 66% of all jobs in the United States are considered at will. Now, 
you could bring a discrimination case against him, saying that he's violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And even though the two of you know exactly why you were fired, your boss can make up any reason he wants. He can tell the court that you were fired because you didn't match with the company culture, or that you were too talkative, or maybe you took too many bathroom breaks. In this scenario, the only way that we can stop discrimination is by eliminating the opportunity that allows it, by ending at-will employment. So with this in mind, what is the overarching system that enables housing discrimination, and how do we get rid of it? That means it's time to talk about housing discrimination against the poor. Now, if I were to talk about economic-based housing discrimination in the same way that I talked about race and sexuality-based housing discrimination, then I would be talking about how poor people get denied for loans more often than rich people, which probably wouldn't be the most surprising thing you've ever heard. That's not what I'm going to do. When we talk about housing discrimination against the poor, we're talking about housing as a signifier of status, about what your home says about your place in society. In the case of poor Americans, housing discrimination exists in the exact same way that it does in the rest of this episode. It's harder to get a loan, it's harder to pay rent, it's harder to secure stable housing. But something that's unique to a class-based discrimination is that the housing that is available is designed to remind the resident that they are poor. This is something that I talk about at length in my book Structural Politics, Ideology, and the Built World, but I'm not going to pretend like you've read it, so I'll talk about it more here. There's a story about the Cabrini Green housing project in Chicago that goes a little bit like this. When the massive brick tower blocks were being built, Residents complained that they didn't like the fact that their building numbers were painted above the front doors in big block lettering. It made it feel like a military barracks. Lawrence Amstotter, one of the architects involved in the project, heard this complaint, crunched the numbers, and found that it would actually be much cheaper to install metal numbers on each building like the residents wanted. There was only one problem. The Chicago Housing Authority thought that the metal numbers would look more expensive and therefore give the taxpayers of Chicago the impression that Cabrini Green was not built as cheaply and as bare bones as possible. Against the wishes of the residents, the architect, and the bottom line, they kept the painted numbers. Low-income and public housing in the United States was not designed to provide people with the resources they need to improve their own lives. It's designed to humiliate, to rub your nose in the dirt and mock you for not having the opportunities that others take for granted. Here's an excerpt from a 2017 New York Times article on Ben Carson's tenure as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Ben Carson does not like creature comforts, at least not for low-income Americans reliant on the government for a helping hand. As he toured facilities for the poor in Ohio last week, Mr. Carson, the neurosurgeon-turned-housing secretary, joked that a relatively well-appointed complex for veterans lacked, quote, only pool tables. He inquired at one stop whether animals were allowed, and at another, 
He nodded, plainly happy, as officials explained how they had stacked dozens of bunk beds inside a homeless shelter and purposefully did not provide televisions. Compassion, Mr. Carson explained in an interview, means not giving people, quote, a comfortable setting that would make somebody want to say, I'll just stay here. The story later goes on to quote Antoine Williams, a resident of a housing complex for the chronically homeless, who said, quote, If he got something to do with Trump, that means he's not really for us. It's not surprising. That's what the rich do. They make it hard for the poor. When our government takes on public housing projects, it'll spend more to give you less because it thinks that if you're poor, you don't deserve comfort. But is it any different with private developers? No. Private developers have created their own innovative way to humiliate the poor. City governments will often offer tax breaks to developers who build affordable units in luxury housing projects. That doesn't sound too bad, right? You have a new skyscraper, and maybe a few of the floors are affordable housing. Well, that's not how it works at all. Instead, private developers have given us the poor door, which is an out-of-sight side entrance that leads to the affordable units. One of the reasons that these buildings have separate entrances for low-income residents is so the rich residents who own million-dollar condos don't have to share an elevator with a poor person. One of the more infamous examples of this is found in Lincoln Square Tower in New York City. The 33-story tower has 219 condos, each with a river view, access to two gyms, a courtyard, a movie theater, a bowling alley, a pool, a 24-hour doorman, and a sprawling luxurious lobby. The low-income apartments lack not only a river view— but have no dishwashers, no light fixtures in the living or bedrooms, no 24-hour door security, and no grand lobby. The residents there have access to a dingy bike storage closet, an unfinished laundry room, and a tiny common area that looks out upon that grand courtyard, which they're not allowed to enter. The doors are only on the rich side. So let's get back to that central question. What is the overarching framework that allows this type of discrimination to take place? And how do we eliminate it? I want you to really think about this for a second. What could prevent this type of thing from happening in the future? The issue at hand, the thing that causes all of these forms of discrimination, is the commodification of housing. You have a right to housing. That might seem like a controversial statement, but I promise you it's not. As a matter of fact, the United States government at one time agreed. In 1948, we signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which recognizes adequate housing as a human right. You have a right to housing. So why don't we in reality? Well, In the words of the United Nations, housing and real estate markets worldwide have been transformed by global capital markets and financial excess, 
Known as the financialization of housing, the phenomenon occurs when housing is treated as a commodity, a vehicle for wealth and investment, rather than a social good. Let me read further from the United Nations report on the financialization of housing. In this case, financialization and commodification mean the same thing. Financialized housing markets respond to preferences of global investors rather than to the needs of communities. The average income of households in the community or the kinds of housing they would like to inhabit is of little concern to financial investors who cater to the needs or desires of speculative markets and are likely to replace affordable housing that is needed with luxury housing that sits vacant because that is how best to turn a profit quickly. So there is our problem. Housing discrimination exists because housing is commodified. The fact that our society doesn't guarantee a right to housing gives power to those who control the housing stock, putting them in a position where they can discriminate. If we want to prevent people from experiencing housing discrimination in the future, then we need to eliminate the leverage that landlords and developers have over residents. The only way to stop discrimination is to remove the opportunity to discriminate. Oh, and if you live in an apartment building, start a tenants' union. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this show, subscribe, leave a rating, or check out the links in the description. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm coming home now, right away. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm sorry now I ever went away. Every night and day I go and stay. I'm coming home, baby, I'm not home. Coming home, baby, now. You know I'm waiting for you. I'm coming home now, real soon. You've been gone. Coming home, baby, now. You don't know what I'm going to do. I'm coming home, I know I'm overdue. Since you went away. Expect me any day now, real soon. I'm coming home. I'm on home. Coming home, baby, now. You know I'm praying every night. And everything is going to be fine. Please come on. Coming home, baby, now. I want to feel you hold me tight. Let to see me now anytime. When I'm in your arms. When you're in my arms, I'll be. I'm coming home, I'm coming home, baby, now. You know I'm coming every day. I'm coming home now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Use your phone. I'm coming home, baby, now. And baby, let me hear you say. I'm coming home, you hear and what I say. That you're coming home. And I never will go away. I'm coming home.
that's what I say, I say I'm coming home. Something's wrong. The road is long, baby, now. But you need to ride a I'm coming home and never more to roam. Baby, tell me you're Baby, I'm for sure coming home. I'm coming home. I'm coming home, baby, now.